Welcome to our Climate and Sustainability Trailblazers podcast with me, Emily Farrell. For our regular listeners, you'll know we've been speaking to a variety of sustainable finance industry leaders who are driving positive economic, social and environmental outcomes. Today is no different, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Sim, CEO and founder of Impact Asset Management. As one of the first and largest asset managers who focus their investment strategy on the transition, Impacts are helping to create a more sustainable global economy. We're also joined by Simon Abrams from Beringa, who is passionate about showing how businesses can generate commercial benefit whilst delivering positive social and sustainable outcomes. Welcome both, and we're delighted to have you on our podcast. Ian, can I start with you and ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your personal and professional interest in sustainability? Sure. Yes. I was in a bookstore in Cambridge, England in uh, the late 1980s. I was just about to finish my science degree and wasn't sure what to do with myself. And I picked up the report from the Brundtland Commission, which was uh, set up by the United Nations to look at the future of the planet and came up with a a pretty sort of apocalyptic vision for how things might uh, go wrong if we didn't change society and, and the economy. And this Commission's report coined the phrase sustainable development, and I was sort of captivated by this idea of sustainable development. Um, It then took me about 10 years to work out what a career in sustainable development might look like. And in 1998, having spent time in management consulting in a small business that I set up in South Africa to sell solar lighting systems, and I also did a bit of uh, environmental consulting work in that 10-year period. So in 1998, after all that, I set up impact asset management with a strong conviction that actually the the way to solve environmental problems was to deploy private sector capital. Wow, fascinating. And you've been in and around this topic for a long time and really focused on some of the, sounds like the leading edge technologies around things like solar as well. Careers are successful. You have fun in life if you do what you're really passionate about and what you're really interested in. And I've always been fascinated by technology, um, by travel, by nature. And I've always been a little bit sort of entrepreneurial. So I've been able to uh, develop a career mingling all those things together. Sounds fantastic. And Simon, can we hear a little bit from you around the same questions, please? Yeah, so I got into sustainability. I started off um, working as an engineer in food manufacturing. And I was involved with putting in one of my early projects was putting in a a vegetable processing line in, in Hull. And one of the things that we had to think about was what to do with all the waste that came out, uh, industrial level potato peelings and carrot peelings. And one of the things which really struck me was we can't put them all into holes in the ground because we just don't have enough holes on the ground. We're a small island. And this whole idea of environmental kind of uh, pollution and what we do with waste really kind of interested me. So I kind of um, thought about getting into this new field of environmental sort of management which not many people were were involved with i managed to sort of negotiate my way down to the to the thames barrier i was the first environmental engineer at the thames barrier and that's where i really came across the whole issue of climate change because the thames barrier was uh, effectively london's insurance policy against uh, against sea level rise and um, while i was at the thames barrier i did a i did a masters in uh, environmental technology at imperial and that's when I kind of said, this is this is what I want to, to do with my career. And a little bit like Ian, there wasn't really a career at that stage. So I was kind of trying to figure out what my next job would be. And um, so I did some really interesting work working for business in the community where I, I, I managed the 
Environment Index back in 2000, we were benchmarking FTSE 350 companies for their environmental performance. Um, I then moved to uh, Jupiter Asset Management, where I was involved in the early days with social responsible investment, working with some of um, Ian's now colleagues, and then moved into consultancy because I wanted to kind of combine the investment side with the practical engineering of actually providing solutions and helping companies on the transition. So that's that's how I got into, into this space. Wow, another really fascinating story. Thanks for sharing that with us, Simon. So Ian, back to you. You, you founded Impact, Impact in 1998, long before sustainability had the prominence it had today. And a um, little bit like the Prince of Wales, I suspect, was talking thinking about the impact of climate change long before it felt fashionable or topical even. I'm intrigued to understand what drove you to that conclusion and, and why you decided to found impact. Well, I think the result of my 10 years post-undergraduate of, of sort of trying to explore what the ideal career would look like for me took me down a number of blind alleys. So I did some work in the public sector, uh, did some consultancy work for the World Bank and realized that the World Bank and many other multilateral development banks have got ultimately uh, capital constraints. Um, I did some work with uh, government agencies, particularly the European Commission, and realized that public policy was actually quite a long and tortuous uh, career. And I, through setting up a small business in South Africa, which ultimately didn't didn't um, scale and I abandoned it, realized what it was like to sort of be in the front line of setting up a, of a business and trying to make a entrepreneurial activity work, which I really enjoyed, but realized there was quite a lot of downside. So I suppose by the late 1990s, I was completely convinced that I wanted to spend my uh, career in the sustainable development area, had really latched onto this idea that the private sector was where the capital depth was to solve environmental problems and was fascinated by business as a way to to take capital to to address all these challenges when i came back from south africa i ended up joining a, a small company called impacts capital which was a um, tiny corporate finance business that had been set up in 1994 to do some advisory work and sell side work in um, the european renewable energy space and so i spent two years there before launching Impacts Asset Management initially as a sister company to do the buy side work. So uh, yeah, it was a, it was a long, a long tortuous uh, process over, over a decade, but one that gave me a huge amount of insight into to different angles on sustainability, which I've certainly uh, benefited from over the last couple of decades. Fantastic. And clearly you've seen sustainability as a topic kind of mature over that time. What does good look like for you at Impacts? One of the things that sets Impacts apart, I think apart from our long track record, is the clarity in which we articulate the vision. So we see that, that sustainable development will be achieved ultimately and climate change will, will be um, slowed and hopefully um, reversed, hopefully in time, through transforming the economy. And what we call the transition to a more sustainable economy, we think is best seen as a set of industrial revolutions or sector transformations in which consumer demand will, will change, facilitated by new products, facilitated again by, by new technology. The governments will provide supportive long-term policy frameworks, sectoral roadmaps, if you like, and that capital will be efficiently deployed. Now, if you can do that effectively across the whole economy, 
we're convinced that you can achieve a fully sustainable economy and sustainable society. The big challenge is how quickly can you do that? Simon, anything from you around how to maximize impact in this space? Yeah, I think we need to move from thinking about the process and what the inputs that people are doing to, to the outcomes. Um, processes and, and inputs are, are really useful, but actually what we want to know is that we are actually addressing the main issue where we're slowing the global warming we are sort of minimizing uh, kind of species loss so we really want to start focusing on the outcomes and i think we need to do a better job at doing that so that the capital is flowing to where we're making the most difference um and at the moment i don't think we've necessarily got the right metrics to do that and we want to get the incentives right so that we are rewarding people and creating business cases for the the right outcomes to be driven and i think that's a that's a that's a an ongoing conversation and a journey that we're still on yeah and i think you you touched on the topic of metrics there and i think that's that's interesting it brings me to my next question which i'm hoping ian can cover because from my point of view it feels that sustainability as a discipline has very much been moving almost from a ba to a bsc so we're getting much more quantitative in terms of how we're approaching it and thinking about it Ian, really interested to hear your views as to how you see that discipline um, developing over time and kind of the expectations you're seeing from your stakeholders around the quantification of sustainability. Yes, look, there's a number of dimensions here. I think the, the starting point is what I was saying a moment ago around sectoral transformations. So the private sector is responding very rapidly to signals from policymakers and from consumers um, around new products and services linked to the clean economy. So, for example, uh, electrification of the drivetrain for passenger vehicles, the switch to renewable power generation. And in that context, the market's working as it has done for decades, if not centuries, that capital is being allocated to the most efficient companies with the, the best plans and best execution. Alongside that, financial investors, either themselves or with a nudge from regulators or other stakeholders, are asking themselves three questions. Firstly, where are the opportunities over the, the coming years that I can maybe deploy capital to ahead of everyone else, realizing just how valuable they are, so I can make a profit? Second is, what's the risk in the corporate world look like from um, new dimensions such as physical climate risk, um, transition climate risk, and potentially risk from uh, disadvantaged communities or other sort of social risks. The corporate sector is responding really well to the signals from consumers and from policymakers around new markets and technologies really facilitating the, um, the rapid expansion of products and services around the electrification of the drivetrain in uh, passenger vehicles. Uh, but also the deployment of renewable energy. The financial sector is looking at three topics. Uh, firstly, opportunities. So what's going on in these in these new markets? And is there money to be made by perhaps moving early into opportunities around growth? Secondly, how's risk evolving? And there is a challenge to look at new sources of risk. So for example, physical climate risk or risk coming from um, reactions of disadvantaged communities. Um, but um, also the risk of um, regulatory change. 
And then the third, possibly most intriguing area is around investment beliefs. So all investment managers or um, those managing pension funds or, or other primary sources of capital have obligations to their stakeholders, be they, for example, pension trustees or, um, or governments if they're running sovereign wealth funds. And the investment beliefs or investment um, sort of morals or ethics of, of that's sort of um, wrapping the fiduciary duty for those investment professionals is changing. And uh, it's intriguing to speculate that over the next couple of decades or so, we may move away from a very sort of harsh form of capitalism to more nuanced, variegated forms of capitalism in which investment beliefs at uh, the fiduciary level, so for example, pension trustee um, level, moving away from maximizing profit to ensuring that there are additional um, positive societal benefits around environmental or, or social outcomes. So um, the landscape is, is evolving in quite a sort of interesting and varied fashion. I think it's too early to call which, which scenario is going to play out, but it's certainly never been a more interesting time to be in the space. Couldn't agree more. And I think very hopeful that certainly within my career, we start to see some of those changes that you outlined. Simon, I'd be interested to hear from you and of the work from the work that you're doing with your clients, what you're seeing changing and kind of what's important about quantification and measurement of sustainability. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting question. And I think that uh, companies like impacts like others like generation have demonstrated that you can focus on outcomes and make really good profits over the long term um, i've been really interested by the rise of um, impact funds in the private equity world where um, investors have loved the story of of making you know kind of for-profit returns while driving social outcomes and what that's done is is really brought a new focus on on outcomes and there's debates around some of the larger impact funds and whether they are driving sustainable outcomes but it has changed the conversation and it has made it much more much more acceptable much more kind of commercial to start thinking about these outcomes in the context of trying to trying to do good in the world and I think that the way that um, those funds have been able to raise significant amounts of capital with a real commitment to focus on outcomes through theories of change and through thinking about things in a, in a more holistic way has been really interesting. And I think we're a lot further down the road because there's a lot of capital looking at driving those outcomes now than there were before that. So I think we've got some way to go, but I think to, to, to Ian's point about investors changing some of their investment beliefs and starting to allocate their capital in these in to these sorts of strategies, these sorts of products is really encouraging because it's really brought the focus on um, real world changes and not just words. And we're seeing record levels of capital flow into sustainable investments, to your point, Simon. And, and actually, we're seeing some rhetoric from NGOs and others around transition investments or investments into transition technologies. And, whether or not they feel that those are in some way greenwashing because they're not, to use your term earlier, clean economy products and propositions. What are your thoughts on greenwashing? Ian? Well, Impact's um, in the rearview mirror is in quite a strong position because we started out with a laser-like focus on 
opportunities to solve environmental problems in the private sector. And back in 1999, actually, Bruce Jenkins Jones and I created one of the world's first green taxonomies in response to a request from a, a prospective Danish client who wanted an environmental uh, technology fund established and there was no sort of definition for what that meant so we wrote down a uh, classification system taxonomy if you like to map out all the sectors that we thought were, were relevant and that led to a universe of stocks and then that underpinned our listed equity work which is a sizable proportion of our, our assets under management today so in that sense we've not only been um, able to avoid any sort of charge of greenwashing because we've been right in the heart of of the green space and uh, but also, secondly, we've wrestled with the definitions of the green space and realized that green is not black and white. Um, there are trade-offs. There are points of distinction to be debated by policymakers around uh, what should be in or out of green classification systems. Um, and so I think with that experience of more than 20 years in the green classification space, I think we're as well-placed as any to, to, to really help um, this debate unfold effectively. Uh, it's very clear that that labelling is required in um, the investment fund space to give particularly retail consumers some kind of clarity uh, around what's in their underlying portfolios. And that's where the risk of greenwashing can be countered through uh, labels from, from strong, uh, reputable brands. So some of the index providers have got strength in this space, particularly FTSE, FTSE Russell, who we've been helping get impacts in this area since 2007. So with the emergence of, of labels and brands, I think we can address greenwashing. I'm concerned that if regulators overstep the mark, then we'll end up with a, a swamp, if you like, a, a huge sort of amorphous um, pile of spaghetti of regulations and classification systems that, that conflict with each other. And that's potentially going to lead to a significant cost for everybody in our industry just to, uh, to comply with uh, what regulators uh, are saying. Thanks for sharing that, Ian. Fascinating to hear about your green taxonomy work and classification system and how that's been leading some of the market thinking. Simon, just interested to get your perspectives on the topic of greenwashing. Obviously, we hear a lot of rhetoric about it in the media. Is it something we need to be worried about and that our clients need to be putting taxonomies, the likes of which Ian talks about, into their businesses? Absolutely. I think they're having a very clear focus on what your definition of a green is so the way that sort of Ian and the the impacts team did it, it it makes so much sense because there were there was real clarity about what they were looking at there was a real cultural um sort of alignment with that and there were controls to make sure that that um that all investments went uh, met those criteria and i think though that that sense of um are you clear about the why have you got all your people lined up and do the controls support that and reinforce that is is really key and i think what we've seen where people have got caught out is that people haven't been clear about why they're doing it uh their people haven't been lined up and they've had very weak controls it does restrict what you invest in because you're saying we're going to invest in this we're not going to invest in that because we believe that this is the way to to, to transition and I think what people are seeing is that if they can give it a bit of a, a, a green gloss without actually having the fundamental beliefs and actually working through to find the best investments and the best uh, the best ideas, what happens is that they they do it in a in a sort of not a structured or a rigorous way, and then they find that they're that they're caught out. So I think greenwashing is a is a 
it's 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 a real issue but fun, fundamentally the people who who have it right who have the right values and and that reflects the way that they recruit people the way that they set up their their business and the controls that they put in place will be a, a good defense against that and and i think some of the some of the 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 businesses which have found themselves on the on the back end of that have have missed out on one of those three areas and clearly there are lots of challenges that we're facing into um i'm interested to hear from you ian in terms of your perspectives on what the markets need to do differently to support us in achieving a just transition and also drive broader positive social outcomes yeah um look i think this is a really important question and one that we're we're not necessarily answering in in the most effective way so that the um the trend right now in the sort of early 2020s is to go for more disclosure uh, green taxonomies and transition pathways corporate net zero all of which i think have the potential to either create quite a lot of confusion and and cost for business red tape if you like or to end up with unintended consequences, for example, the deployment of huge amounts of capital into supporting the steel industry transitioning to green steel, when what we should really be doing is shrinking very significantly the size of the steel industry and replacing it with other products, for example, based on, on wood. So in contrast to that, I think what I'd like to see is focus on pace of change and focus on what we can do for developing countries. So the pace of change, I think, is probably the most critical question for the developed world right now we know how to electrify the drivetrain we know how to uh, to move to zero uh, zero emission vehicles but we're struggling to build the supply chains and deal with the unintended consequences pollution for example up, up the supply chain for um, around battery manufacture and to bring these this new industry into being quick enough to reduce the cumulative emissions of greenhouse gases from the transportation sector. The same goes for renewable energy, although we're further down the, the S-curve, along the S-curve, if you like, for that than we are with electrification. Green heat or decarbonizing heat is a major problem. Um, it doesn't seem as though we're going anywhere near fast enough in the shift to a uh, alternative to natural gas sourced um, fuels. We'll probably need a hydrogen economy ultimately, but it's hard to see that really taking off until the, the 2040s at any sort of global scale. So pace of change is, is the most important thing for the developed world. For the developing world, I think there's some more fundamental problems, particularly around the investability of um, many developing countries in a classical sense. So many countries in that part of, of the world lack um, basics such as reliable <coughs> rule of law, or enforcement of property rights. Uh, they don't have um, basic infrastructure around road and transportation to move, move things around, which really hampers development in general, but sustainable development as well. They don't have skills base. And in many cases, they're politically unstable. So if we're not going to address those topics, it's hard to see how, how a conventional approach to financing sustainable development there is going to work. Beyond that, I think there's the the noise around disclosures and classification systems and taxonomies is is potentially getting in the way. Um, these are areas that could be addressed uh, relatively swiftly, and then creating a sort of a clear agenda for us to focus on what's really important. I think the just transition needs um, 
you know, if I if I connect my passions around um, sort of sustainable development with diversity and particularly ethnic diversity and hearing voices from different parts of the world, my concern is that the people trying to think this through, um, particularly with regards to the capital markets, are not diverse enough. And therefore, the solutions that are trying to be developed in terms of in, in terms of some of the, the other countries and, and, and the governance issues are not as representative and not as thoughtful as they could be if the people thinking through those solutions were properly diverse. It's still the case that most of the most of the capital that is looking to be deployed in this way uh, is, is Western and very much white Western. And, and I think we don't have other voices at the table to help them think through the solutions and to come up with solutions which fit with both the economies and the societies which need to undergo those changes. And I think that's something that we need to look at and see how we can get other voices in the room to help make better decisions. Fully agree, Simon, that's an excellent point. And I'm not sure the mechanisms are in place to do that at the scale that we need. So uh, yeah, we definitely need to focus on that. I guess that's really delving deeper into that trend of convening and what we need to do in this in the world of sustainability is get more voices together at the table to solve problems collectively. Ian, you touched earlier just when we were exploring some of the challenges that on your view of some of the solutions that were needed to support us in driving to a much more sustainable world. Could you outline those for us in a bit more detail? Yes, look, I think there's a couple that are worth dwelling on. Number one is the, the power of long-term policy frameworks. So I think we've all been hugely energised in the UK in the transportation space since the government indicated that from 2013, no new uh, vehicles with internal combustion engines could be sold. And that's given nearly a, a decade of of notice around a market change, which gives the industry time to, to adapt and gives an incentive to those who are minded to invest, for example, in electric vehicle charging infrastructure, that there will be there'll be customers in volume uh, in time. Similarly, European commitments to long-term development of offshore wind, um, the Danes, the Germans, the the UK and the Netherlands in particular have helped to catalyze what's now an enormous industry and has potential to be the the dominant supplier of renewable power in northwestern Europe. So these long-term policy frameworks potentially with with subsidy but not necessarily so well-targeted objectives coupled with investment in public goods like interconnectors to um, large areas for multiple wind farms that sort of policy is is um, hugely beneficial in, in accelerating change. So second, I think there's a huge opportunity for corporations to make early bold moves in some areas. So for example, we have seen that Amazon have sent a very strong signal to the global transportation industry, particularly in shipping, that they want to see zero emissions transportation for their goods over time. And that's been a great encouragement to many of the global shipping um, providers, for example, Maersk, to commit to 
green forms of propulsion, particularly around um, hydrogen and ammonia, and start ordering ships that are based on technology that doesn't really exist yet, but by the 2030s should be viable and commercial so that ships of the late 2030s into the 2040s will uh, potentially be zero emissions. So early bold moves um, can make the difference and, and sort of catalyze the, the speed of change that we're looking for. I think the, the final area which is intriguing is around the financial sector itself. I think there's been um, some very interesting work done on new forms of financial instrument, for example, carbon credits from peatland restoration. And in the context of nature-based solutions and ecosystem services, there's a lot more work that can be done to create financial instruments around preserving nature and link them to uh, regulatory targets, for example, around sort of uh, caps on greenhouse gas emissions with offsets. And then finally, I think the scope for financial product innovation and going back to my earlier point, uh, which Simon also touched on around investment beliefs, then I think the scope, quite significant scope for investment managers to set up products that have got um, more clear impact objective and almost sort of putting impact alongside and not ahead of financial returns. That won't suit the majority of the market at the moment, or maybe even ever, but it will suit and be attractive to certain pockets of, of capital. And those pockets, I think, are, are going to be sizable enough to make a real difference to the kind of catalytic investments we need, particularly in the developing world. Simon, interested to hear from you about the solutions you think we need to see in the market moving forward. So our theory of change is that if we can decarbonize all the point sources of energy use, so whether it's whether it's vehicles, whether it's the products from the fossil fuels sector, if we can decarbonize them and find alternatives, then we only the, the one thing that we have to fix is the energy for homes and for heating. And if we can move that to renewables, then we've effectively decarbonized the system. I think we are struggling to find alternative solutions to many of the products that we have that are fossil fuel based. We're struggling to find alternatives for plastic, which are as cheap as light, uh, have the same benefits as plastic. And I think we need to do more in terms of finding these alternative solutions, which are available to those who don't have the same amount of uh, disposable income as others. And I think many of the solutions that we've developed so far are quite aspirational. They're, they're quite costly. And I think we need solutions which the average citizen can affordably use at, and deliver the same sort of benefit. And I think we're not there yet. And there's issues of identifying the right products, trying to get them at scale so that commercially they can land to the majority of population. If, if we think that the average salary in the UK is 27,000, then we need um, solutions which people who are on 27,000 and less can use and that way we can transition. Uh, my concern at the moment is that the solutions that we're coming up are at a price point which are which are unaffordable, which makes the low carbon or the environmental sustainability sort of product suite quite niche and quite elitist. We want to move that very quickly so that we've got broad acceptance and we need to do more work on some of those products, more work on some of those solutions and more work on some of that marketing. Thanks, Ian. And I'm afraid to say that's all we have time for today. I wanted to say a massive thank you to Ian and Simon for being so generous with their time. It's been an absolute pleasure spending time with you both and Ian to you in particular, learning more about the investment philosophy at Impact. Thank you very much. <laughs>